us in worship this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to Mark's Gospel. We are in chapter 10. We are not just in it. We are around it. We are going to immerse ourselves deeply there because we are covering it in its totality today. If you are uh, looking at the numbers, that is 52 verses. So in the words of Smokey and the Bandit, we have a long way to go and a short time to get there. As my kids say, let's go. They also say, sheesh, and I have no idea what that means. Yesterday, we went as a family, with the exception of Shepard, because he doesn't swim anymore, to the recreation center for a swim meet. More than likely, if you're in this room, you have uh, attended a swim meet. You know that swim meets exist, kids racing in the water. And as we're walking out the door, uh, Hope reminded me that it was my turn to keep up with uh, the kids. She's keeping time, and she hands me a card and said, you just need to let them know where they need to be. That's great. Where do they need to be? And she had an itemized explanation as to what I'm supposed to do for the rest of the day. And on this itemized explanation, she lets me know that this is when Charlie needs to be here. He has to be at the waiting space, and they'll tell him when he's going to swim. You don't worry about Charlie. You worry more about Noli, and definitely worry about Alder. Make sure they are where they need to be, when they need to be there. Some of this emphasis is mine. But it's just the way that our hearts work at the house. We focus on getting them to where they need to be. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. The problem is, it's not just you dealing with your children. You have to deal with people in general. And I don't know if you've ever met people, but they are a tad bit problematic. (laughs) I'm sitting there in the rec center in this chair, one of the, your, our folding chairs where you are supposed to relax and think about camping if you believe that to be relaxing. And I am drinking a bottle of water and an unsweet tea and then I start hearing people call numbers and I start rushing my kids where they need to go. And I'm interacting with my children, which is fantastic because they are wonderful humans that I'm grateful for. I'm also interacting with other people, just general other people. I'm interacting with people who know a lot. I won't call them know-it-alls, but they are. Uh, Who understand everything that's taking place in this swim session that the children are in. I'm interacting with people who know nothing that are my type of people. And I'm interacting with very, very demanding people. Please, let's go full circle back to my children. And as I'm working through all of this, all that I can think is I have to get people places. I've not watched one of my children race. I wouldn't know if it was my kid who raced. Why are you handing me a ribbon? Do we have any Cheez-Its? This is what's going on in my head for the entirety of the day, running these things through my brain. When we are in Mark chapter 10, we see Jesus dealing with people that are very similar. We see Jesus dealing with children. We see Jesus dealing with demanding people. We see Jesus dealing with people who know a lot. We'll call them know-it-alls. We see him interacting with people who know nothing. We see him interacting with people who need everything. We see Jesus in all of Mark chapter 10 interacting with people. This is the conclusion of our third section of the Gospel of Mark. And here's what's so interesting to me. We are in chapter 10, chapter 11 forward, cover the last week of the life of Jesus. That's why it has been given a very specific portion of time for us coming in the fall. 
And as we look at the story of Jesus, as he begins to deal with the disciples, we're going to approach this text a tad bit differently than I usually do because of the expanse because I want us to see what's taking place here. If you like a sermon title, the title is Questions and Answer. And as we look at the first question we see is in chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And the question that Jesus is forced to deal with as he's approached by the Pharisees is, Do you agree with me? That's really at the heart of any question that we ever ask. Do you agree with me? If you've ever asked a question, you did not go into the asking of that question. And I have not gone into the asking of that question without some preconceived notion as what I want to hear from that person. Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12, you have the Pharisees. And if we're being truthful, there's a little Pharisee in all of us. He set out from there and he went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. And then crowds converged on him again As was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus replied, what did Moses tell you? What did he command you? And they said, well, Moses permitted us to to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, well, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of of your hearts, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and will leave his mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. They start this conversation by asking Jesus what he thinks. It's not from an earnest place. They could care less about what Jesus thinks in regard to divorce. They care that he thinks what they think. They care that he believes what they believe. When he says to them in verse 3, What did Moses command you? Their immediate reply has nothing to do with the command of Moses. The command of Moses comes in Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis. Moses wrote Leviticus. Moses wrote Deuteronomy. He wrote, ex- he wrote these books. The command that is given comes from the book of Genesis. They reply with what Moses has given as permissible reasons to divorce in Deuteronomy. His question is, what did Moses command you? And they say, well, this is what he gave us law and reason and permission to do. So to understand that, we've got to look at the strict divorce laws that were abused regularly by the Pharisees at this point in history. Deuteronomy chapter 24, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her on the way. What a unique thing to say. They go to that. But they don't just go to that. They go to the breakdown of that. I had a conversation with some uh, 20-somethings this week. And we were having a, a discussion of basketball. And they said that they believed that LeBron was the greatest of all time. And I said, you're dumb. 
And I told them about the 90s and what I lived through. And this conversation ended with one of those 20-somethings saying something to me that was absolutely ridiculous. He said, why can't there be two goats? And I said, that's not how goats work. The Pharisees, when dealing with the commands of Moses, had these different interpreters that some would go to. And those different interpreters focused on different words. One was a guy named Shemel, and he focused on the word indecent in this passage. The idea of your wife, if she does anything that is indecent. And that could be, she could cheat on you, but it could also be other indecent things. You found her hair to be overly disheveled. They weren't into the messy buns, I suppose. Her arms were too exposed for you. That was their focus. But the one that the Pharisees aligned with the most was a guy named Hillel, and he focused on the phrase, uh, some. Not that she would be indecent in, in regard to what the other guy said, but that there was something about her that really just caused you to be frustrated. Things like, she made a dinner that you didn't like. That would be a grounds for divorce. The Pharisees uh, who uh, followed Hillel would go to the extreme uh, of divorcing wives at times for one day. That's why Jesus gets clear at times in other portions of the Scripture. They would divorce for one day and they would, in essence, uh, prostitute their wives out only to remarry her. That's why Jesus gives this command. That's why he gives these very specific directions to these men. Another guy was named Akubai, and there's no way I'm pronouncing that, but it's not the first time, won't be the last. And he did not even focus on those phrases of some or indecency. His focus was on favor in the husband's eyes. So he believed that a husband could divorce his wife because he found someone to be prettier than her. These are horrendous things. And they're not commands. Jesus comes after the heart of this and he goes not to what Moses has given as permissible that you have completely distorted and misunderstood. Jesus goes to the idea of this. The original command of Moses was two becoming one. Jesus goes back to before sin messed everything up. Jesus told them in verse 5, He wrote this command because of the hardness of your hearts. Moses gave you laws and you abused them. Verse 6, But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. And what Jesus has just said to them is, I believe not what Hillel said, because that's who you're worried about, or what Akuba, who I've mispronounced, said, or what Shemel said, who what I believe is what God said through Moses from the very beginning. So yeah, we are aligned. And he keeps moving. He keeps moving and they are interacting. Jesus is not saying that there are no exceptions for divorce. Jesus is saying that well, he will completely talk about that in other places of the Scripture. We'll see as Paul talks about other elements of that. We see the ideas of adultery and abandonment in all of its forms. 
They get on the inside. And when they go inside, Jesus goes more in depth. Why would Jesus do that? Because John the Baptist was beheaded recently. And it's not time for Jesus to be beheaded. But he has addressed the the heart of the Pharisees in this passage when they say to him, do you agree with me? And if our lead when we're talking to Jesus is, do you agree? We're leading as if we are the one who says the most important thing. Jesus has... It's unique when you look at the wording here because you've got the idea of the hardness of their hearts. Jesus reiterates this phrase about the two becoming one flesh and it's almost as if he's saying that there is, there is something compassionate that's there. You can't undo when two people have been brought together. The two have become one. You cannot undo that. What's he, but people have attempted to. What's he pointing out? Just think through this with me. I don't know one person in my life who has gone through divorce that does not have some ill feelings toward the person they used to be married to. There's tension, there's stress, there's nothing. And if there's nothing, that means there's something. Jesus said when he brought these two people together, there's hardness of heart that's there. This is a lot. There's going to be something that is tense in Jesus He's taking us to the heart of God. God desires for man and woman when they are married to be together, united. But because we're in this book, we keep moving. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter into it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. I read that phrase and I almost think of this passing of the peace that Jared instituted last week while I was gone. I don't even know. Is that the phrase? Can we go with slinging the peace? I feel better about that for us. It's the idea of blessing children. Jesus has important stuff to do. The disciples look at him and they know that he has important stuff to do. Jesus is on a beeline. He does not need to be bothered by children. Jesus is looking at them and in the world in which the disciples lived, children were not viewed as valuable. It's probably the extreme opposite of what we do because far too many times we look at our children and we have elevated them to the places of gods. They weren't seen in that way at this point in history. They were seen as bothersome and problematic. Jesus is being approached and people want him to bless their children and he rebukes them, becoming indignant toward them because they have been so hateful to these people who want their children to be blessed. He uses the word... When we talk about Jesus becoming indignant, he uses the same word, Mark does, to talk about the way that he speaks to his disciples as he does when he talks about when Jesus rebukes demons. Jesus is saying, if you are opposed to the children coming to me, you are functioning in the way of the demons. Why? Because the kingdom of God is for people who need God to bless them. Who acknowledge they need God to bless them who come before God and do not try to come before Him with their own abilities or their own strengths. 
We don't come in and say, you know, I had some things figured out, but if you and I could just have a small conversation, it'd be okay. Think up through this. And I've heard this pointed out, and I love it. If you've ever seen a child with a gift, because that's what the kingdom of God is, that's what Jesus offers to us, this kingdom. What do they do with the gift? There has nary been a child who has ever received a gift and began to hold it and look at mom and dad and say, you know, you should not have done that. I could have picked this up myself. They've never started to unwrap the paper and say, could you put this to the side? We'll use it again later. They tear into the gift because they see that there's something there that is immeasurably more important than the wrapping. Jesus, as he talks about the idea here of them coming to him and receiving the gift that he offers, the children who are asking me to to bless them, this matters so much. It is so significant because they see their absolute need for me. The kingdom of God is theirs. Jesus uses some really good language in this book, and I don't want us to miss it. He talks about the kingdom of God and His kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is the kingdom of God. Now, as we look through Mark, he's all, we see that Mark is very much talking to us about action throughout the whole of the book. But when Jesus speaks, He always speaks as if He is God. The kingdom of heaven is here. said really early, why is the kingdom of heaven here? Because Jesus is here. Jesus forgives sins and uses the language that he forgives sins, though the Jewish people believe that only God forgave sins. There is evil that only God can deal with. Jesus deals with it. Jesus is letting us know when he talks about the kingdom of God and who enters into the kingdom of God that you can't be okay with God if you're not okay with Jesus. Jesus is necessary. What is our question? Jesus is asked, will you receive me? And Jesus says, if you you want to be received, I will. What is Jesus? One pastor says, what we see in Jesus, what you see in Jesus, you get with God. Jesus, in this passage, we have this parallel. Because... He confronts those who think they have it figured out and he comforts those who come to him helplessly. We function a little differently at times. We confront those who don't know any better and we have hardness and harsh hearts at times. But if someone has it all figured out, they're welcome. None of us have it all figured out. None of us do. We trust in the one who we believe does. Jesus keeps moving with the disciples. You get to verse 17 and we have a passage that you know really, really well, which is beneficial when you're covering 52 verses. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's his question? How can I get God to see me? 
What must I do? Now, Mark doesn't give us the whole scale telling of the story. He's not just a man. He's a young man. He's not just a young man. He's a rich young man. This is the rich young ruler. He rules. This man comes to Jesus and says, Tell me, teacher, because you've been teaching, I've been hearing that you teach, and you've been teaching here, there, and everywhere. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus points out, you're missing something, and the thing you're missing is this, verse 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus asks. No one is good except God alone. So I'm not saying that I'm not God, but you're not acknowledging that I'm God. We have a a bridge to get over. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. When you hear this, it echoes what we see in in Psalm 1. This is a good person as far as lateral goodness goes. If he showed up here, we would be really into this guy. We got that debt we're working off, he would be helpful. This guy rolls in, and Jesus and him begin to interact. He tells Jesus, All that stuff in verse 18 and 19. Not that he would have said 18 and 19 because Jesus is talking and not writing down numbers and words. Teacher, I've done it all. Every single bit. I've been knocking it out of the park. 21. My favorite phrase in Mark chapter 10 shows us the heart of Jesus. It says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. But this guy doesn't see Jesus as God. The Jesus that we find in Scripture loves people. Whatever thing we figured out about people that we don't agree with, and there are numerous reasons that we should not agree with people about this, that, and the other thing. But if in the heart, or at the heart of our feelings about whatever their behavior is, if we forsake the idea that Jesus loves people, He loves us. This we know. But he does tell him something that's incredibly honest. You lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then follow me. Now, Pastor Chad, are you saying that I have to get rid of all of my stuff and my 401k and my 402k and all of my stocks and all of my bonds and my crypto to follow Jesus? I'm not saying that for you. I'm saying that for this guy. Why? Jesus wants us to invest in what matters to us. Jesus wants us to take and invest what matters to us the most. And for this guy, it was all of his stuff. He could not follow Jesus if his stuff was in tow. 
If you invest what matters to you the most, you're investing everything. That's how we follow. So Jesus is pointing out to this man his inconsistency and his, his missing of the mark. And he's inviting him to follow him. But in following him, it means that his identity that has been his identity for his entire life, it's got to go. We can agree that Jesus says that our identity can't be our lead anymore if we're going to follow him. Those are actually contrary, lead and follow. He was dismayed by this command. And he went away grieving. I love that this translation uses the word grieving there. Some will say the word sad. Grieving. This is heavy on him. Because he had so many possessions. Tricky wording, don't miss it. He was grieving because he had so much stuff. And the idea of following Jesus and giving up this stuff doesn't make sense. And if we are going to be people who follow Jesus, there will be things that we have been called to give up that don't seem to make sense. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, Oh man, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Why? Because their entire lives they've been told... That if you were wealthy you were, and you were prosperous, that God had blessed you. Jesus has just undone that. That you matter to God more than them because no one, they never mattered to anyone. These guys got drafted last. Jesus said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. As I point out, Occasionally, this whole camel needle thing. There are, there's probably a, a Hillel school of thought on that. There's a lot of discussion about those camels. This is all one thing, though. Je- Jesus, when he says to sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, when he's that's not three things that the man lacks. That's one thing. This thing has become you, and for you to follow me, you has to go. They were even more astonished, saying, What are you talking about? Who could be saved? 27, looking at them, he said, Well, man, it's impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. This man came to Jesus and he believed that he could do it. What can I do? He didn't believe himself to be helpless. He was not in a position where if I didn't come through, he didn't get through. He was not in the place where he looked at Jesus and said, If it is not for you, I'm not going to get in. I had a friend in high school. We sat down in my truck. I drove a Ford Ranger, 1995. Same model as my Honda Accord. And as he was... A friend shared that he was in my truck. We're chatting. And he said, as we talked about heaven and what it meant to follow Jesus, he told me that he believed that he would go to heaven because he was a good guy. And I told him he was wrong. That was tense. That you don't enter into the presence of God for eternity because you're a good guy. Because your goodness is kind of lacking. And by kind of, I mean absolutely. 
I wonder at times, however, on the other side of that, for those of us who claim to be people who have aligned our lives with Jesus, if deep down in our hearts, we yes, we believe that by the cross of Jesus we entered into faith through His resurrection, I wonder at times if we believe the way that we maintain our salvation is by being good people. Just like your goodness didn't get you in, it doesn't keep you in. Because that abandons the cross. And if we abandon the cross, we've abandoned Christianity. Period. Peter loved this. He's like, oh, what? he told that guy to get rid of his stuff. Jesus, I've left everything to follow you, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> The word began is important because he, he got that out and Jesus cuts him off. Peter, this is the way it is. There's no one who's left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more. It's so much better to follow me than to not. Houses, brothers, sisters, mother, children, fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Do you think if this is the point where the disciples are in? Sign me up for this. Last, first, first, last. Let's overthrow Rome because they keep going to that. What are the things that Jesus puts his finger on that, that cause you to hesitate really, really following him? Are there those things? What are the things that Jesus is calling you and calling me to abandon that we are not abandoning? So they think that the kingdom's about to be established. Here we go. Jesus reigning and ruling. Maybe he forgot about the whole thing about dying a few verses ago. And then in 32, 33, 34, I'm going to die. It's at the heart of this text. They want Jesus to say something. That would make them believe they could rule in this world. It, and here, even in this moment, after he reminds them of his death, they come to him again with a question about reigning and ruling. I've, got a, I've had pastors for years that would call me, youth pastors, and they would say, hey, we kind of want to travel and speak. We think that'd be really fun. It, it is sometimes. But what do I need to do to get my name out there? Well, don't do anything. Don't. Don't invite yourself places. Don't send out a promo flyer. Don't. So I have this conversation, and then the next thing... Well, so, that's cool. Now, what is it that I need to do? Don't. And it's, it's, you have this, it's Groundhog's Day, every conversation. The disciples are there with Jesus, groundhogging, full-circling. Because Jesus has just told them the first will be last and the very next thing out of their mouths. Will you empower me? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, verse 35, they approached him and said, Teacher, we <laughs> this is one of my favorite phrases in the Bible because this is me. Teacher, 
We want you to do whatever we ask you. Awesome. Kids do that at y'all's houses. One of the better... Matthew's version of the story is even better because these guys don't go. They send their mama. (laughs) I just love it. What do you want me to do? Jesus asked them. Well, I, I mean, of course. When you get into your kingdom, I want to sit on your left and I want to sit on your right. Allow us to sit on your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I will be baptized with? And these doofuses say, Yep, we're in, we're able. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Now the cup that he's going to drink is death. He will go he will be buried. Buried with Christ in baptism is the language that we use as Credo Baptists. But to sit at my right and my left, that's not mine to give. Why is that not his to give? Because the person on his right and the person on his left, when Jesus is glorified, crucified on the cross, they are thieves and robbers. Yeah, you're going to die, fellas. But right and left, those seats are taken. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Why? Why are they so mad? You think they're mad because of the question they ask? Or are they mad for the real reason that all of us would be mad? That we did not think to ask the question first. Jesus called them over, huddle, said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. So the question that Jesus asked of his disciples. Look at the Pharisees. Look at the rulers of the Gentiles. Do you see how they're acting? Why are you acting like them? I I love you. And I know that some of you guys have positions of authority in your job. Whatever you're doing with chemicals or nuclear things or nanotech. That's Tony Stark. It's not real. (laughs) When those who work for you interact with you, is it any different than those who lead them that don't follow Jesus? Have you asked? 43, it's not that way with you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. We are bound to Jesus. That's the language he's using. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's Obi Wan Kenobi season at my house. Which reminds me, so if you've not watched it, I'm not going to spoil it. That's on you. But recent Star Wars have, have, have shown us on television and in film the, the, the way that Luke and his, um, again, this is a spoiler, his father Darth, you may say, hey, why are you ruining movies? And I will say, that thing's 30-something years old. That's on you. They've shown us the power of Luke and Darth as they walk down a hallway and this is what it kind of looks like they're going to enter a hallway and just <laughs> nothing can touch either one of them ever Luke's got a robot hand Darth's got a robot everything else at this point in the text Jesus has been moving and everyone's coming at him with questions and the questions that are from an unhealthy place he deflects just knocks it out he does that with the disciples. He does that with the rich young ruler. He does that with the Pharisees early on. And even with those who were rebuking the children, he said, what are you doing? We don't do that. We get four questions in this passage. And then at the close of it, we see the answer. And I don't want us to miss the answer. Because someone's about to make a demand of Jesus that I think is really helpful to us. When they get to Jericho, verse 46, they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus, he began to cry out to him. What's he going to cry? Will you help me? Can you make me see? He doesn't ask of Jesus. He tells him something. Son of God, son of David, have mercy on me. Everyone starts shushing him because remember, people like children and those who have, are blind in this world and those who have any type of, of limited ability whatsoever in the eyes of everyone else, they don't matter as much. Shut up, Bartimaeus. Leave him alone, Bartimaeus. Why are you yelling at him, Bartimaeus? Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, Have mercy on me. The only person who makes a demand of Jesus in this run is a powerless person. A helpless person. If you read through Mark's Gospel, you see that. Those who are helpless and powerless, when they interact with Jesus, He undoes whatever needs to be undone to make this world that is wrong right for them in that moment. 
this powerless, helpless man cries out to Jesus and tells him what to do. Verse 49, Jesus stopped in my head, which is a scary place. I see Jesus telling this entire crowd to hush, though they've been telling the helpless man to hush. Call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage. They've changed their tune. Get up. He's calling you. He threw off his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. And then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do? Teacher? No. He doesn't. He cuts to the chase. Teacher? I want to see. Go. Go. Your faith has saved you. Faith is something that helpless people need. He is helpless. People treat him as if he doesn't matter. I need you. Does this mean Jesus heals everybody? No, we see pictures in the scriptures where he doesn't. Go, your faith has saved you. This helpless man tells Jesus, I'm helpless, can you do something about it? Not even, can you do something about it? Maybe you're here and you've never trusted in Christ. And it may have taken to this point for you to realize how helpless you are because of your sin. Sin separates us from God. We can't overcome that. We've almost become numb to it in our society. When Jesus brings you to the helpless place where you realize that your sin is something you cannot undo on your own, no matter how many things you think you can do, Maybe you'll be at the place where you say, Jesus, I'm helpless. Do something about it. I'm separated from you. Do something about it. And what Jesus does here is really, really powerful. And I don't want us to miss Mark's wording. Immediately, he could see, and he began to follow Jesus on the road. The name Bartimaeus is really helpful to us as Bible readers. When the Bible names someone like this, it lets you know something. That the author doesn't just randomly know blind person, man who can't walk, deaf person, demon-possessed person. When the Bible names someone, it lets you know that the writer has an intimate, possibly lasting experience with this person. So Jesus has his disciples with him. He has the disciples who are unnamed with him, the twelve, the rest. Bartimaeus works his way in and begins to follow Jesus. That's where he goes. The joy that God offers us when we realize our helplessness is that he empowers us to follow him. To be part of what he does and to be part of how he does it. To be kingdom people in a world that is in desperate need to see who the king really is. So would we align our lives with what God has done for us when this teacher speaks to us, showing us our shortcomings and his 
not shortcomings. His wholeness. His meeting us. His fullness for us. Because the answer is, have mercy on me. That should be the heart of every person as they approach Jesus initially and as they continually approach him. Jesus, I just, I'm helpless. I need your mercy. I need your mercy. I need your mercy. Because he doesn't stop giving it. He doesn't. Let's bow our heads this morning. Lord, we thank you that your word is good and true. Lord, if there are any here who would be in that place this morning where they would say, Jesus, would you have mercy on me because my sin has made me helpless? Would they say to you, Jesus, have mercy on me? And here you say, yes. Lord, would my hard heart, which is very far from you at times, would you make me more tender to things that I don't understand? Lord, would those things in my life that I need to abandon, as someone who follows you and has to continually think through what those things are that are keeping me from following you, would I release those? Would we release those? Father, for my men and women in this room who have positions of authority, God, I pray for them right now as one of their pastors that they will lead those you've given given them an opportunity to lead in a way that is unique and different than those who don't. Father, I pray that we will see ourselves more in the places of the children who came to Jesus and the blind man, Bartimaeus, who came to Jesus. Seeing what it means for you to call us to be last. We trust you, Jesus. We thank you for all that you've done for us in your word, all that you've done for us in our lives. And I pray today, God, that you would save lost people and that you would shape saved people so that your kingdom will will be more and more obvious to people who are far from you. We ask this in your name.